Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. About what we're going to be talking about here this evening. Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 5 starting. The Bible says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And I'll stop right there. My subject for the next few moments, still uh, concentrating on worship, is this. The vicious cycle of worship. The vicious cycle of worship. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you tonight. I'm thankful, God, for those that are here. Thankful, God, for those that have come to center their life, God, around about your word and your table. I pray, O oh God, this evening, God, you're able to anoint my mind and anoint my heart. God, those things, Lord, that I have, Lord, ingested and put into my mind and heart, God, that you're able to bring out of me at this moment in time. God, for the benefit of this body and the benefit of this people. I pray, O oh Lord, today, God, touch us afresh. Lord, through your word, help it direct and guide our lives. Open our understanding and lightness, God, by your word. God, and I'll thank you and I'll praise you, Lord, for doing that. God, help us, Lord, to be attentive, God, to what the Spirit may be saying, Lord, to the church in this hour. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. And everybody say amen. 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 You may be seated tonight in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if I were to ask you this evening, what was Israel's greatest sin, or maybe terming that a little bit differently, what was Israel's greatest weakness? Uh, where did Israel find herself failing over and over again? What would be your response? The nation of Israel. Sister uh, Craig takes my lead by looking her in the eye and thinking about what we're talking about. She says, worship. And in essence, that is exactly where Israel found trouble. Her greatest point of failure, her greatest point of sin, if you were to call it, was all uh, attached to and connected to her worship. We have said this many times, but it bears saying again that throughout her long history, it seems that history records time and time again that Israel went after what? Other gods. They served. You can, if you would run a concordance on the words other gods or serving other gods or worshiping other gods, you would come up with so many scriptures, particularly throughout the Old Testament that speak about the children of Israel going after other gods or the terminology might be serving other gods or that they worshipped other gods and sometimes even tax on there they worshipped other gods even gods they did not know I mean so they're just worshipping things they even didn't know a good case in point is Deuteronomy 29 and verse number 26 Deuteronomy is the book of remembrance that's what it means it's a recalling a remembering of some prior happenings and the Bible says for they went and served 
other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not, whom he had not given unto them. So this was a problem for the children of Israel. They had a chronic problem throughout generations with their worship. And so that is not like something that's isolated just to the Old Testament Israel. That's something as we as the children of God has inherited. Bad thing to inherit, you know. Sometimes you inherit, you can inherit good and bad traits from your family. Well, that's a bad trait that we inherited from Israel. And that is, it is still a crux, a sore spot, uh, a spot of failure for the modern day body of Christ. And that is, sometimes we fail in our worship. Amen. Uh, there's reason and the great reason why that as Moses was on the top of the mount for 40 days and 40 nights with God and the Lord was giving him instruction concerning the commandments there's important reason why the first of all the commandments that he gave unto Moses on that mount highlighted this very spot that we're speaking of this evening Amen. Addressed it first, no doubt, because it would be uh, tampered with. It would be tried the most. Exodus 20 and verse 3, in those commandments, the Bible says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God addresses that with the nation of Israel because he knows that's going to be a problematic area. So we're going to put that first and foremost. He knew, and as we've seen over the past, uh, now this week, number three, three weeks of looking at this idea and concept of worship, we know that the enemy has, he's just bent on trying to pervert our worship. He's bent on trying to divert our worship, or at least have the wrong object of worship. If we could go on just a little bit here in Deuteronomy 13 and verse number 6, and I feel like, feel like God opened my mind and understanding on these passages of Scripture today in particular. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 13, 6, If thy brother, thy son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers. So it's speaking about all these different relations that you may have. Son, uh, a son, a, a son of a mother, a brother, a daughter, a wife, of a bosom. All these different relations. Uh, people that might speak into your life or these relationships, if you will, that would entice you to go after another god or other gods. Uh, any of the fathers the way that this chapter starts out in Deuteronomy chapter 13 the way that it starts out it is speaking about prophets it's speaking about uh, the way it terms it is dreamers of dreams dreamers of dreams and prophets that would try to steer the nation of Israel from the true God from serving and worshiping the true God to serving and worshiping other gods, a prophet. So, you know, there's some clout in that, a person that you may highly uh, respect, steering the people uh, to serve another god. But in verse number six, then, it relates how different people, uh, these different people that you may be in relationship with, people that you may be close to, may influence you to go after or serve or even worship other gods. If I can bring it to the core of the message is this, simply stated, People that we are in relationship with. And let me say this. Relationships are not just confined to people. All right? People are in relationships sometimes with uh, 
things. You can be in relationship with concepts, ideas, ambitions, all these different things. You can, it's not just people, but you can be in relationship with things. So if I may, simply stated, uh, the people and things, if I just put things encompassing everything, people and things that we are in relationship with can be persuasive in drawing away our attention from where our attention should actually be. Things that we are in relationship with can draw us away from serving, worshiping, honoring God to serving and worshiping something other than God. The Bible, the reason why I say that the Bible continues to say in Deuteronomy 13 and 7, going on with that mind of thought, if it's your son of your mother or your brother or your wife or all these different relationships, they can draw you away from God. It goes on. It says, namely, to serve these other gods, namely of the gods of the people which are around about you that are nigh unto thee or far from thee, from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. But look now. It says in verse 8, this is, this is the admonition then to them. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him. Neither shall thy eye pity him. Neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. Look at verse 9. But thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death. And afterwards the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die because he has sought to thrust thee away from the Lord by God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now look at the scripture. The scripture is saying this is how you deal with relationships that draw you away from God. This is the word of the Lord. Now I understand this is a natural means but there's a lot of natural scripture that has spiritual implications. And so he's saying, this is how you deal with relationships that's trying to pull you away from God to other gods. Things of a lesser sort. And notice, you look at verse number 8, it lists them. It's, here's, what, here's what thou shalt not do. He said, do not consent. And the literal, the literal Hebrew is, do not be willing, yield to, accept, or desire it. The other do not, he says, do not hearken. In other words, don't hear, don't listen to it. The Hebrew is, don't obey it. Number three, these relationships is trying to pull you away from God. He says, don't have an eye up, don't pity them. Meaning, in the Hebrew, don't have compassion on or look upon these things with compassion. You know, it's amazing to me because many episodes throughout the scripture, the Bible speaks about the eye of pity or pitying something with your eye. There's other things that are, are associated with the hands and the feet, but pity usually for the most part is always associated with the eye. Do not pity, don't look upon them, don't have compassion on them. And my mind goes to uh, the book of First and Second and Third John. In First John, wherever the Bible speaks of those things that take us are the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and what? The lust of the eyes. Don't, don't pity it with your eye. Don't have compassion on it. Don't look upon it with compassion. Uh, number four, these relationships that are trying to pull you away from God, do not spare them. In other words, don't be mild or gentle with them. Don't be, in the Hebrew, don't be long-suffering of them. Now, this, this is drastic measures here. In a natural sense, 
But this is how drastic we need to be in a spiritual sense of the relationships that we have, I can still say, with people or things, ambitions, dreams, ideas, that pull us away from the worship and the service of God. We need not spare them. There's no need in being gentle or mild with them or being long-suffering as though, well, their character's going to change. He says, do not conceal them. In other words, don't cover them. Don't try to hide them. This is literal Hebrew. Don't conceal them. Don't hide them. But here, everything he told us not to do, now he tells us this is what you need to do with it in verse number 9. He says what you should do, you should kill it. He said, whenever you have relationships with people or things that's taken you away from the worship and the honor and the service of God, you need to kill whatever that is. And it goes a little bit more specifically. Look at verse number nine. He says, you should kill it. Now notice what he says. He says, you, meaning the one that is in the relationship with this person or thing, you be the one to first put a hand on it. Listen to me. And then the hand of the rest of the people. I cannot put a hand on something you're in a relationship with that's leading you away from your worship and service to God until you first put your hand. I can preach it. I can teach it. But I can't put my hand on it until you put your hand on it. So see, we would... There's a recognition. You're, you're the one you know, in relationship with that, so you got to put your hand upon that, and then we can put our hand upon that, and we can do away with this thing. Because I can't conceal it. I can't spare it. I can't be gentle with it. I can't be generous toward it. I can't listen to it. I can't obey it. I can't yield to it. I can't accept it. In other words, it's a conflict of interest to keep it in relationship with you if it's trying to rape you of your relationship with God. Now, verse 10 tells us plainly why we're doing this. He says it's because that thing or that person, that relationship has sought to pull us away from God. Our relationship with that purpose or that person or that thing or dream or ambition, whatever it may be, became more important than our relationship with God. Therefore, in my life, if that thing's pulling me away, in my life, that thing cannot exist. Amen. Because we'll worship it or we'll worship supposedly what it's associated with. Now, call it ambitions. Say, well, everybody has ambitions in their life. That's true. But if your ambitions are separating you from the worship of God, you need to kill your ambitions. They might be able to exist in somebody else's life as long as God still remains on the throne. But if any of you understand, we can all have similar and very same similarity in concerning some of our relationships. But if in somebody's life, yours or perhaps in my life, there's something in my life that you got in yours that your relationship with, but it's pulling me away. I can't spare that in my life. You can in yours because it's not, it's not getting the best of you in your relationship with God. But in my life, I can't spare that. <laughs> 
I can't conceal that. I, I can't consent to that. I've got to kill it. Because the, you understand, I, I can't cohabitate with that because it has such a big draw on me that I'm jeopardizing my relationship with God, keeping it around. I might be able to say no two or three times, but it's constantly vying for my attention. So I got to kill it. In my, you might be able to keep it. That's just because me and you are different, but I got to kill it in my life. Amen. And so, when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind that we view in Genesis 3, I submit tonight that the fall that we view in Genesis 3 is in reality a worship problem. Just follow with me. Because whenever we read in our scripture reading tonight, we, we often just just look at the surface reason why Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And we commonly, and I have personally commonly noted that uh, Adam and Eve failed or the failure in the garden was because Adam and Eve did what God did not want them to do. They ate of the tree. They were not supposed to be allowed to eat of. And that's really what our minds fasten on very quickly is that, well, they did what they were not supposed to do. But then I want to go just a step further and ask ourselves the question, why did they do that? Why did they do that? Well, first of all, they were deceived into thinking it wouldn't have the consequences God said it would have. In Genesis 3, 4, the enemy, the serpent, speaking to the woman, said, ye shall not surely die. But that compared to Genesis 2.17 where God spoke to Adam and said, in the day that you do this, thou shalt surely die. So God says, ye shall surely die. The serpent says, ye shall not surely die. And, and so they're being deceived and thinking that it wouldn't have the consequences that God said it would have. And even more importantly, Sister Craig, have you already made mention of from your pew teaching with me here tonight? More, no, that's fine. That's great. I have no problem with that at all. It makes me know that somebody's reading the Bible. Hallelujah. More importantly, instead of a negative consequence, so they, they didn't believe the negative consequence was going to come, but they personally believed that they would personally be rewarded. Amen. See, because a lot of times, this and many other scriptures throughout the Bible underscore the fact that Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 encompassed really a worship problem. He says, the day that you do this, you're going to die. The devil says, you're not going to die. As a matter of fact, whenever you do this, you shall be as gods. Now, just correlating this with a worship factor here, in Deuteronomy 8, 19, just consider, the Bible says, and it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, he says, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. So, when they don't walk after God, when they don't worship God, when they don't serve God, the judgment was this, you're going to perish. Yet God also speaks here in Genesis that whenever you eat the tree, the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. You shall perish. Okay, everybody understand just the correlation there. Genesis 3 and 5, though, here is the enemy, not a negative consequence. 
The day that you do this, your eyes shall be open. Ye shall be as gods. Notice the promise. Ye shall be as gods. What did that do for Adam and Eve? That appealed to the human side of them. That is the same appeal that appeals to all humanity today. Because what's that going to do? That's going to put them in a place of prestige. That's going to do something for them. That will be pleasurable for Adam and Eve. And but in saying that, in doing that, it was an attack. Partaking of the fruit then, if he's promising they shall be as gods, that's the real reason why they're doing it. Uh-huh. The, the real reason is because they've been told you're going to become something. You're going to be somebody. You're going to be as gods. And so they do that. And in doing that, their desire then was really an attack on their worship to God. Because now they're going to be as a God. In other words, they're going to be the superior. Uh-huh. They're going to be the one that's endued with great power. So their, their desire was for something else more than it was for God. They desired the fruit of the tree, not just because of the fruit in itself, but what they believed the fruit could do for them. I dare to say that, and this is just totally speculation, that Adam and Eve would have not ate of the tree if that little extra thing was added about that they could be gods if they partook of the fruit of the tree. We look at the fruit, man, they, they did that wrong. No, 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 wrong. But really, just partaking and eating of the fruit of the tree, eating of the fruit of the tree was a means to the end of hoping to become a god themselves. You know, being it all in a shake on the side too, you know. So I submit tonight that the problem in the garden was a problem with an object of worship. It was a worship problem all the way back in the very beginning in the garden. Amen. On the surface, Adam and Eve just not eat, eating what they should not have ate. But in reality, what were they seeking for? They were seeking to serve, to please, and to revere themselves as gods more than God all the way back in the beginning. So if I consider it in that token, whew, you know, we a lot of times say, yeah, sin's going to be a problem. It was sin for the early family. True, but let's get more specific. There was a worship problem in the early family that the devil ever started this rodeo out with. And he, he don't know how to do any change-ups. He does the same old stuff. He's still trying to get us today. We have shared this before, but I deem it important to share it again tonight. Romans chapter number 1 and verse number 21. The Bible states, because that when they knew God, everybody say knew God, they glorified him not as God. In other words, they didn't worship him as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. Now we, we concentrate on, I deem it important again for this month to look at this again. Because according to Romans chapter number 1, in Romans chapter number 1, we see things like wickedness, we see a spirit of worldliness. We see carnality. We see perversion breaking out on the left and breaking out on the right. And all of this flows from the absence of a worship toward God. Because we will never be able, as in our human lives, we will never be able to be righteous or we'll never be able to be in right standing before God if we don't become a worshiper of God. Because when worship falls apart, 
that gives way to worldliness. When you keep, and when God doesn't stay primary on the throne, that gives way to carnality. That gives way to perversion. That gives way to the homosexuality that's in our world today. Whenever God doesn't remain as God. And so we look through scripture, there's all these unimaginable attitudes and actions. There's fornication, there's murder, there's backbiting. There's covenant breakers. All of this thing is happening because they knew him as God, but they didn't glory. They didn't worship him as God. And furthermore, if whenever worship breaks down, all those things come in, you can rest assured that if you can keep the right object of worship, it will help keep us from wandering down some of those paths. If the breakdown of that, the result is these things, then if you keep this in good standing, then it somehow prevents some of this stuff. You, you, you have a greater likelihood of not going there if your worship is where it needs to be. Amen. And so there is no surprise then in the early family back here at Genesis that the man, listen to me, that family that was made in the image and in the likeness of God that they ate what they was commanded not to eat. And then, as a result of that, he's thinking about this idea of becoming a God. He, he's desiring that. He's serving that. He's worshiping that. Amen. And before you know it, all kinds of things start breaking out in the Bible and in Scripture. It's very soon after that that his very own offspring called Cain, who had no precedent of a murderer, that was before him murders his own brother how can that happen worship got off from the very beginning and whenever worship's not where it needs to be according to Romans 1 carnality and perversion murders fornications and adulteries happen Cain didn't have to have a precedent to follow all he needed was so there to be a breakdown in the worship of the family in order amen at the core of every murderer is a diverted worship. At the core of every gossiper, at the core of every liar, if I say it like this, at the core of every forbidden fruit eater is a miscued, maligned worship. The object of worship has went belly up. And the deception in the garden was this. We think that we can have both, but we can't. New Testament scripture tells us we can't serve two masters. The problem is whenever you cleave to one, you automatically dethrone the other. They don't abdicate their throne, but you dethrone them in your life. Amen. Someone say amen. amen. And so here's the tragedy. I think the greatest tragedy of Romans 1 is that they knew God. Now remember, I think it was last week or something, we started going along that idea that revelation and encounter is a prerequisite to worship. You're not going to worship a God you don't know. But they knew God. But they didn't worship Him as God. Now that, let's just use our good old common sense, okay? Whenever we get around someone that we perceive to be better than ourselves, we react for the most part in one of two ways. We aspire to become better. 
because we're in this person's presence that is just, wow, they're awesome. Great person. Or we attempt to criticize that person because they're too good in the light of our own slackness or goodness. So the response of the Roman church is, they knew God. He's awesome. He's great. He's wonderful. But rather than doing what he really wanted to happen, for them to aspire then to be just like him, they sat back and bumped the ball, and they're going to be critical. Why? Because they don't want to go up to the level of God. They want to bring God down to their level. I'm seriously, when you get in that type of circumstance, I've seen it happen in everyday life. People either want to be around that person or they want to stay as far as the way as they can from that person. Why? Because they're not a good person? No, because it doesn't make them feel very good about themselves. Amen. So Romans 1, they, they know God. They knew God, but they didn't worship him as God. As a matter of fact, they responded, listen now, just like Adam and Eve responded in the garden. They responded incorrectly. In Genesis 3, 8, and 3 and verse number 8, the Bible describes how Adam and Eve responded when they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden. This is how they respond. The Bible says, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Why? Now notice, things were fine before they diverted the object of worship. God came down in the garden, we suppose. They had communion and fellowship with God. There's no hiding. The Bible says in Genesis 2, they're naked and not ashamed. But now that the object of worship has changed, see, they were made in the likeness and the image of God. They were so similar. This idea of sin, this idea of improper worship hadn't entered the picture. Whenever God showed up, no big deal. I'm made in the likeness and the image of God. But whenever I sought to make myself God, there's something that happened to my image. And so now whenever God comes down, I look at him and I look at myself, we're not as similar as we used to be. I'm not where I used to be, so what does that do to me as humanity? I start feeling shame. I start feeling guilt. I start feeling condemnation, although God's not condemning me, I'm feeling condemned within myself. And so you're going to have two different reactions. You're either going to want to correct that and get back to being like God, or you're going to flee and hide yourself as Adam and Eve did because of all the shame, guilt, and condemnation you're feeling in your life. <laughs> the vicious cycle of worship. Because see... Whenever we come into the presence of the Lord and God really shows up and, and shows who he is rather than what he does, it calls us to have a self-reflection as Isaiah did in chapter 6 that we looked at last week. And we might say, woe is me. But people's going to react differently. Some's going to be wanting to alter that and change that to get more like God. But there's other of us that we want to hide, we want to conceal, we want to spare because we feel guilt and we feel shame and that's the way that our adversary wants us to respond he doesn't want us to get the object of worship back where it needs to be no he wants us just to carry around all this guilt and shame and condemnation and you know what that does that does nothing but push us further away 
from where we're needing to be. Someone say amen. So Adam and Eve, why in the world did you respond like this? Well, God's presence is there, it told us. His presence is there. So God was just there, just like in Isaiah 6. He shows up. Isaiah looks at him and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so now with God in the presence of them, they're looking at themselves. We're not quite in the likeness and image of God like we were when this this whole thing started. Before there was no difference, but now there is some difference because they've had an incorrect worship system that started since then. It altered some things about them. And in verse number 10 of Genesis 3, verse number 10 of Genesis 3, Adam mentions some things. This is the reason why I hid God because I was afraid and because I was naked. Before they were naked and not ashamed, so we, 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 we implied or inferred here is now they're naked and there's some shame because they're hiding themselves. This is what happens when we get off kelter with our worship being toward God. We'll come back to his presence where he is and we feel shame and guilt. That's what the enemy wants us to feel. But God's intention for your shame and guilt is not to push you away from him, but wants you to desire to be, get back and get more like him. You've got to interpret God's motives right. Because not we just go think, man, he's just, he's just here judging me. God, notice, God did not walk into the garden and say, hey, what do you all think you're doing eating from that tree I told you not to eat? No, all God had to do was show up. And God being God, the holiness of his nature, of who he is, started bringing things out in his life. He didn't have to say one thing about what they did. All they had to do was see who he was and who they were. And conviction began to fall. That's the reason why sometimes in our services people get real nervous whenever God really does show up. Because as long as we're praising and worship, whoa, God did this for me. He paid my car off. And you, every, every individual under the sound of my voice and outside can do that. But whenever the awe-inspiring presence of God really moves in a house, and there is no utterance, but there's demonstration. And there's tears going down people's faces because they're realizing who they are in the presence of God. They start getting a little fidgety. And they go to the bathroom. And they look at their neighbor you know, this is the first time this person's been there and said, well, we just don't worship like this at our church. Now, what it is, God's entered the room. They've had a misappropriated object of worship and they came where God is and they're saying, whoa, I got some things wrong here. And they got the fight and flee mode going on rather than the humble and accept and surrender mode. God just showed up. He didn't say anything about what they were doing wrong in their life. He just showed up. Amen. So, here he comes. Adam says, we're naked. We're ashamed. We're fearful. And something that we must understand from Adam and Eve is this, is what will help us worship God and not just praise God is the absence of guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. Because when shame, guilt, and condemnation was there, they wanted to hide because those things no doubt make us fearful. They make us uncomfortable. God's here. <laughs> this is me. I know what I've done. I know where I've been. 
I know what I've said. I know what I've thought. God's here. <laughs> Wish I didn't say that today. Wish I hadn't went there. Wish I hadn't thought that. God's here. Woo-hoo. I feel bad about this. feel kind of guilty. I'd like to get out of his presence because I'm not feeling so hot. I'm feeling kind of thick. I dare to say some sicknesses that keep people from churches because, man, when they get in the presence of God, they literally just don't start feeling good because they know where they've been. They know what they've done. They know what they said. But a good, a good thing, amen, to be able to worship God uninhibited is try to keep from those things that puts God below anything else. Keep him number one. As long as you keep him where he belongs, you can walk in. And yeah, just because of humanity, there's still going to be a little uneasiness, but there won't be the same type of junk that's there as if you just kind of blew up that day and you just kind of took out your semi-automatic and shot everybody down with your mouth and your attitude. And You understand what I'm saying? You can walk in there and you're a little bit more like God than what you'd been if you'd done all that. Someone say amen. Because something happened whenever we worship God and God's in the presence, God confronts us with who he is. And that makes us confront ourselves with who we are. And there's a stark contrast between who God is and who we are. But again, the the purpose of it all is not for me to leave his presence, but for to provoke a change in my life. Now here's the interesting thing. The more that we become like God, the more we'll worship God. The more we become like God, the more we'll worship God because we'll have less fear, shame, and guilt when we enter into the presence of God. Now, we'll never absolutely be like God in these fleshly bodies. So if someone going to check that off your list, okay, if you have hopes, forget it. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. It's not happening. You got to wait till your change comes. Rapture, you shall be as he is, Scripture says. But until that day, we're always going to be lacking just a little bit. But it should not keep us from trying to better ourselves. The Bible says in John 4, verse number 7, Sister Sheila, I just had you hanging up there for a while. Been going on. John 4, verse 7, the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. The Bible says, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said unto her, give me to drink. Verse number nine. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now notice. Jesus has done a long journey. He's shown up. He's sitting on the well's mouth. Here comes a woman. She's got some problems. We understand scripture. She's got some problems. But the Lord's sitting at the well and the woman approaching. He does not start to say, hey, what about those five husbands? What about the man you're with now that's not your husband? He doesn't say any of that. The only thing he says, he says, give me to drink. Well, read it like I'm reading it. This woman how is it that thou being a Jew ask this drink of me which am a woman of Samaria the woman had no problem with his request she had a problem with who he was she had no problem with the request it's with who he was see this is how it happens God shows up 
and just simply him being who he is causes something to arise in us. Uh huh. She says, How in the world you, you, you're a Jew? I mean, he didn't, he didn't initiate confronting the negative things in this woman's life. He could have harped about the five husbands and the man that she was with that was not currently her husband, but he didn't. He just showed up and conviction fell. He shows up in the garden with Adam and Eve and they're tucking tail and running and hiding. God didn't say anything about them eating the fruit and all that garbage. He just showed up. Conviction fell. So the, the confrontation here is not that he asked for something to drink, but because of who he was, he was a Jew. And just being there, his robe, no doubt, and attire revealed that he was such an individual. She became uncomfortable <laughs> and realized he was a Jew. Now, her response makes the difference in contrast to Adam and Eve. Her response makes the difference in contrast to Romans 1. Their response of knowing God but didn't glorify Him as God. Notice what she does during this discourse with the Lord in John chapter number 4. Her response makes the difference. Jesus begins to talk to her that if you had known who I am, uh-huh, He said, you had asked me to drink and I'd give you living water and you'd never thirst again. Whosoever drink of this water will, will, will thirst again, but whosoever drink of the water that I give him shall never thirst. And through all this, what does the woman finally say? She says in around verse number, verse number 15, here's the right response. So she's there. She's uncomfortable because who this is. But she doesn't leave the well. She doesn't go back to her house at Samaria. What does she do? She says, sir, give me this water. <laughs> she's not tucking tail and running because she has all the guilt and shame. No, she says, I know what I'm feeling right now. I'm uncomfortable but you know, the truly the only way to change this is not to avoid it. It's to own it and get through it and get more like him. Sir, give me this water. You know what happens in that moment? She says, sir, give me this water. She admits that she's in the presence of one that has something she doesn't. Sir, Give me this water. Why do you need me to give you this water? Because I don't have that water. Well, in that case, who's superior? Jesus. Woo! And so by her statement of give me this water, she's admitting she doesn't have it, but he does have it. She is in essence exclaiming him superior. You know what happened right there? Worship. Ah. And so whenever he's put in his right place, she's aspiring now to be better. She goes and tells her, oh, let me tell you, a man that told me everything that I'd ever done and all this good stuff. And man, there's great revival then that we see happening in Samaria because somebody was willing to go beyond the feeling of guilt and shame and say, I'm not going to run away from this. I'm going to own it. But I'm going to aspire to do better. The Bible says in John 4, in verse number 20, Further later in their little discourse here, I'm keeping track of time. You're lucky I subtracted two pages before I got up here this evening. So at this stage, we would really have probably about four or five left. Now someone's doing the math. John 4 and verse number 20. Our father, she said, worshiped in this mountain. We looked at this a little bit over the past few weeks. And ye say that in Jerusalem, 
is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, so this is the woman's theory. She says, our fathers worship in this mountain, but you all, you all Jews say that in Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. Now Jesus responds back to her. He said, woman, believe me, the hour cometh. In other words, there's a day coming, there's a day approaching that neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem, nor yet at Jerusalem will they worship the Father. Because, listen to me, prior to the Holy Ghost being given, all right? Prior to the Holy Ghost being given, here, according to John 4, seemingly, prior to the Holy Ghost being given, worship seemed to be tied with location. We worship in the mountain. They said, no, you worship Jerusalem. Location, places, worship was tied with that. But whenever we receive the Holy Ghost, where there were earthly sanctuaries and temples, now we become that temple and that sanctuary. And so worship isn't regulated to a place or location like temple, sanctuary, Jerusalem, or on mountain. But wherever you are, you can worship. Because you've become the temple. Hallelujah. Someone say hallelujah. You become the tabernacle. Amen. Amen. And so when we understand that, and, and, and let me say this as a side note. If we don't worship in private, we'll be less likely to worship in public. Because since worship can make us feel a little uncomfortable because it is God just stripped out right there before us and the awesomeness of who he is, if you can't stand being uncomfortable in private, you're probably going to have a hard time feeling uncomfortable in public. And so it's primary to worship in private so that you'll be able to go in public and still worship because you're going to feel uncomfortable among your peers and nobody likes to feel uncomfortable among their peers. But something you got to understand, they're uncomfortable too. <laughs> Amen. The Bible says, back to this sanctuary, that's being the temple concept, Psalms 150 and verse number one. Amen. It says, praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Now, if we, if we had the Holy Ghost and we don't praise God, there's some problems with our modern day sanctuary because he said praise him in the sanctuary <laughs> now David may have been speaking of a present generation now sanctuary then but for the future it's a spiritual so as he's saying praise him in the sanctuary honey ye are the sanctuary and if you had the Holy Ghost and you're not praising God you must have some problem because that Holy Ghost has made you a sanctuary Amen. And so we should praise God in his sanctuary. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Know ye not that ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Now consider verse number 2, uh, Psalms 150 and verse 2. It says, Praise him for his mighty acts. Here we are again. That's what God does, right? But it says, Praise him. The better word would be worship him according to his excellent greatness. Excellent greatness is not what God does. It's who he is. Amen. So again, we see this good marriage of praise and worship that is in the Scripture. And can I say this? By and large, for the most part, praise is a prerequisite or preliminary to worship. 
There's too many, there's not too many people that, or I don't know, really many, that will just worship cold turkey. Because what happens when you start, what does the Bible say, even the old tabernacle times, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. That's the first mode of action. Why? Because whenever you praise and give thanksgiving to God for the deeds he's done, that you know that he has done in your life, then that begins to harness our attention, not just on what he's done, but the doer of the doing. Is that right? The doer of the doing? I know that's kind of, you know, wallow that around your mouth a few times. And, but it starts to harness, when we start to think about what he's done, we think about who's doing that. And then that engages worship. And the creator is greater than his creation. The creator is greater than his deeds, his acts. So if we've been amazed by what he's done, think how amazed you'll be by the doing, the person doing it. If you're amazed by something he's done or some object he's made, you need to consider the personality that's behind all of that. Worship will ensue shortly thereafter. I'm coming. I'm coming to a landing. I really am. Vicious cycle of worship. The reason why I called that is because worship always taking place, our object switches, and sometimes because of that, and cause to fall out of worship with God or in worship with God, causes to feel condemned, guilt, and shame at times, other times. It's a cycle, it seems. It was for Israel. Luke 15, verse 18, the story of the prodigal that left home, wanted all of his goods that was his, left riotous living, did everything that he'd done. But the Bible says whenever he came to himself, in verse 18, he said, I will rise and go to my father. If I say my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Now, understand, the previous verse, verse number 17, uh, the previous verse points out that the son understood that the father's servants had bread. That's what he said. You know, not the, not, not the servants of my father's house have bread. Here, let me just go there and read it. I don't want to mutilate it, okay? We want to be true and honorable to the scripture. Amen. Uh, 15 and verse number 17. It won't be up there. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hard servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And then his statement is, I will rise and go to my father. So after he makes that assumption, he, his father has bread. He's given it to his servants. His servants eat of his father. This is what his father does. This is what his father has. But notice, he's not saying, I'll rise and go to the kitchen of my father. No, I'm not arising and going to the kitchen for bread. No, what's he doing? He's going to the father. Sons understand something. He's not going to where the actor deed is. He's going to the actor. He says, I will rise and go to my father. Folks, remember Romans 1? They didn't worship God and all this man carnality and wickedness and all this stuff takes place as a result of that. Look what happens here. The Bible speaks in Luke 15 that the son gets a best robe that's draped across his shoulder. He gets shoes put upon his feet. He gets a ring that's placed upon his finger. A fatted calf is killed to his benefit. But it wasn't because he went to the bread or he went to the shoes or he went to the fatted calf. It was because he went back to his relationship. He went back to the Father. Because whenever you get the Father back where the Father should be, 
Just as when he's not there, everything falls apart. When he is there, things start coming back together. You start feeling a new robe put on your shoulder, shoes on your feet, a ring on your finger, a fatted calf for the celebration of everything. But you got to go back to the relationship. Worship is all about a person. Someone say amen. Was it uncomfortable going to his father? You better believe it. There's some discomfort there. Don't you think he didn't get in daddy's presence and think about how he asked for the money that was right to him? And that money wasn't supposed to be given to him anyway until daddy died. So whenever he asked for his money, you know what he was saying? Dad, I just kind of wish he was already dead. Yeah. He said, give, my, give the portion that belongs to me. That didn't happen until daddy's dead. And he's saying, I want it now. <laughs> daddy kind of wish he was dead. Everything, don't, he knew that he was in there and he had been feeding with, with swine and the hogs and all this, the husks that they fed with and he was working there and it only could be a Gentile that had hogs because the Jews weren't supposed to have any dealings with them and so he working for a Gentile was a bad thing anyway. Yeah. You wasn't supposed to work for a Gentile in New Testament Scripture. A lot of the, lot of the people that uh, uh, were publicans and tax collectors, see, they were looked down on as people because they were Jews that were look, working for Gentiles. That was a no-no. Let me throw this in here just for good measure. Whenever he was working there and feeding the pigs and everything, he was feeding something he could never eat. We spend a large portion of our life sometimes when we're outside of the house of the Father investing in things that we can never benefit from. And so he comes in with all that big load in the presence of his father. Did he feel uncomfortable? Yes. But he wasn't going to allow his guilt and his shame and his discomfort cause him to turn around and just leave daddy again. He said, no, I want back. Not with the, yeah, the bread, that's great. But I know that comes from the father. Let me reestablish my relationship with the father and the bread will be there. The ring will be there. The robe will be there. The fatted calf will be there. Some people are trying to come back to a place, church and are still missing out on relationship with the Father. You need to do more than come to church. You need to get back to the Father. Come to church may never benefit you if your object of worship is still skewed. Come back to a relationship with the Father. Amen. So all this came up on him. What does he do? Whenever he does that, he confesses. He confesses to his dad. He's repenting. You can look at it in scripture. He's repenting. He comes to his father. And man, he's telling him, man, I am, I am no, look at verse number 21. If, if you have your Bibles open, he says, I have sinned against heaven and against thee. So he's in his father's presence. He's feeling uncomfortable because he's not like the boy he used to be. But what does he start to do with all that shame and guilt? I'm feeling bad about this, so I need to do something about this. Dad, I was wrong. Dad, I sinned. I should have never left. Man, whenever that happens, whoo, Father just starts stepping up on the throne. I'm a low-down, dirty scoundrel. I'm not worth anything. Woo, woo, because he's prostrating himself with all of his baggage before his Father. And worship's happening right there in that reverence and that respect. And so whenever the prodigal son mended the relationship as the outflow of the mended relationship was these other things that was added back, was the deeds and the actions added back to his life when he got father where he was. 
He might have went back to the house and just grabbed a loaf of bread and thought that was good. But you know what? When the bread was gone, it was finished. But if he could reestablish a relationship with the Father, there'd be endless supply of bread. Stand with me tonight. I'm sorry if I took advantage of you, dear folks. But I'll do it again. Vicious cycle of worship. Hallelujah. We just bow our heads in this place. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.